In our study of the Huddleberg Catechism, we come to the sixth petition of the Lord's Prayer this evening. Lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. One of the things we're going to be emphasizing in what the Catechism says is that this affirms the reality of spiritual evil as something we face, and that is something that our Lord Jesus Christ was aware of as he anticipated going to the cross for us. John 12, verses 20 through 36. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So there came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Almighty and everlasting God, our Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that we are sinners, conceived and born in sin, unable of ourselves to do any good. But we do repent of our sins and seek your grace to help us in our remaining weakness. Through the teaching of your word, which we confess with the church throughout the ages, satisfy our hunger and quench our thirst with your refreshing truth, that we with all our hearts may love and serve you with our Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, the one and only true God who lives and reigns forever. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Our lesson from the Heidelberg Catechism is Lord's Day 52. I invite you to turn with me in the back of your Psalter hymnals to page 896. I know as we've had to make room in the bulletin for the song, it can be a little bit tedious having to turn in the back of the Psalter hymnals, but that's actually the rhythm that I grew up with. It feels strangely nostalgic that when you come to the Catechism, you turn in the back. It was never printed in the bulletin, so... Back in olden times.
page 896. We're going to be focusing on question and answer 127 in particular this evening, but we're going to go ahead and read the entire Lord's Day responsively. Lord's Day 52 of the Heidelberg Catechism. What does the sixth petition mean? And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil means we are so weak that we cannot stand on our own for a moment, and our sworn enemies, the devil, the world, and our own flesh, never stop attacking us. And so, Lord, uphold us and make us strong by the power of your Holy Spirit, so that we may not be defeated in this spiritual fight, but may firmly resist our enemies until we finally win the complete victory. How do you conclude this prayer? For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. This means we have made all these petitions of you because, as our all-powerful King, you are both willing and able to give us all that is good. And because your holy name and not we ourselves should receive all the praise forever. What does that little word, amen, express? Amen means, this shall truly and surely be. For it is much more certain that God has heard my prayer than I feel in my heart that I desire such things from Him. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, this evening we are focusing our attention on question and answer 127. Next Lord's Day evening, I hope to do the next two and focusing, in fact, especially on the use of the word amen and question and answer 129. But this evening we're focusing on 127, which is about the sixth petition of the Lord's Prayer, that petition being, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This evening, I want us to see from the Heidelberg Catechism that that petition of the Lord's Prayer teaches us to acknowledge, to believe, to express in prayer three things. First, that there is a real conflict. Second, a real enemy. And third, a real victory. To your outline, a real conflict. The sixth petition of the Lord's Prayer reminds us that we are engaged in a real spiritual conflict and that we depend upon the Lord's protection. Now, what I'm hoping is that that way of phrasing this will already remind us something about how we are understanding, reading this section of the Catechism on the Lord's Prayer, that this petition of the prayer reminds us of something. It, of course, does not remind God of something. God knows everything. We have to be careful of thinking of prayer in that way. Now, God does delight to do things in response to our prayers. The scriptures are clear that God uses our prayers as a means. We can say they make a difference even in what God does in that sense. But another thing prayers do that it's easy for us to forget is that they are given to us to do something to us, to remind us. Now, I know this point is a bit of review, but I want to make sure we keep this in mind. Letter A on your outline. That the Lord's Prayer, much like all of the Psalms, is given to change us as we pray. I was struck by this a moment ago as we were singing Psalm 30. Psalm 30 describes a pattern of there being a time of weeping, sadness, brokenness in the Christian life, and the pattern being that it is so often God's way that then in the morning comes a time of joy and gladness. That there are times of difficulty that God delivers, and then there are times of joy in response to that. 
And that psalm sings of that entire experience, that whole arc of an experience. But as we are singing that, there are people here gathered just in this sanctuary that are at very different points in that sequence of experience. Some of us are in a time of sadness such that we cannot even imagine wanting to sing about gladness. Others of us find it so easy right now to sing of something that is joyful that it felt unpleasant to sing about times of sadness. And so what is that doing? Are we supposed to pick which one is more sincere for us? So some of us will sing one stanza, others will sing the other. If we think of a psalm or a prayer as simply being an expression of how we feel on the inside, well, that is what we would have to do. But what is happening with a psalm like that? Well, God, by his word, is calling us to pray it, to sing it, that we might then enter into that experience, that we might acknowledge something to be true that we may not be feeling at the moment. We enter into it so that we would be formed by it so that later in life, when we do encounter a time of brokenness and sadness, we have been formed by singing of that pattern. It is ultimately the pattern of Christ's death and resurrection. And so we are given those words to change us, to shape us, to make us think and feel and live in a way formed by them. Well, the Lord's Prayer is doing that as well. And this sixth petition is doing that in particular. Letter B on your outline. The sixth petition isn't just about asking for something from God, though it certainly is that, it's also about orienting us to a spiritual reality that it is easy to forget or neglect. Listen again to the language of our catechism. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil means. We are so weak that we cannot stand on our own for a moment. This is already something we are needed to be reminded of. We are tempted to think we are strong. We are tempted to think we have nothing to worry about spiritually in certain seasons of life. And this prayer then awakens us to the reality that, they are, that we are weak. If we think for a prayer to be sincere, it has to just spontaneously overflow from us, then we would only pray that when we feel weak. But that is not the point. The point is, it is precisely the case that we often do not feel that way, and we're given that prayer to challenge us. We are weak. The answer continues. And our sworn enemies, the devil, the world, and our own flesh never stop attacking us. Now notice how that whole first half of the answer of what that petition means is not asking God for anything. It's simply saying something that is true. In the prayer, by saying those things, we are being reminded that those things are true. That we are weak and that we are engaged in a spiritual conflict. The prayer, the catechism tells us, is reminding us that we have sworn enemies. There are enemies in the world who have sworn themselves to attack you, to bring you down spiritually, and this prayer is alerting us to that. The value of this should be fairly obvious. If you are in a war, in a war zone, and you live as though you're not in a war zone, so you picture some scene from World War I trench warfare and instead you are having a picnic. You're obviously in great danger. To be in a war and not be behaving as though you are in a war is a great danger. Well, our catechism is telling us that is why Jesus gives us this prayer. We have so many ways that we are tempted to forget, to neglect, to ignore that there is real spiritual danger around us and this prayer is given to remind us of that, to alert us to it. We pray every Lord's Day, deliver us from evil. 
There is evil you need to be delivered from. Well, what is that? Let her see. The Catechism highlights three enemies in particular. The devil, the world, and our own flesh. Working backwards, our own flesh simply refers to the fact that we are sinners and that until Jesus returns and the world is made new, we continue have to, we have to fight against our own sinful tendencies. The world is referring to those in the world, our fellow humans, who are opposed to Christ and the gospel and therefore oppose the church, whether it be by way of persecution, whether it be by way of temptation, trying to get the church to blend in with the world, that there is the reality that humanity is part of that opposition to God and to us as the church. And then the reference to the devil is alerting us to the reality of spiritual evil. And the reference to the devil is very important because it's alerting us to the reality of personal spiritual evil. Something that we do not often think about, talk about. And I would suggest the main problem is we do not often experience the Christian life in this way. That there is real personal spiritual evil that is attacking us and that we ought to think in the Christian life of that being something that we are facing. Now, part of the problem or one of the dangers when you get a list like this is to want to parse them out. So one way we could be tempted to want to approach this is to say, okay, um, I have this particular thing I'm facing in my life, a particular challenge. Which one is it? Is this my own sinful flesh? Is this the world as we think of it as uh, humanity opposing us? Or just the brokenness of the creation, the curse? Or is this demonic oppression? And I want to encourage you that there are many times in many ways in which the scriptures speak Uh, The Psalms have many examples of this. In fact, we uh, sang Psalm 83 this morning. I think it's a good example of this. That does not sort that out. That it doesn't always answer the question. Any given situation, we don't know. I recently had a time a few weeks ago that felt like great spiritual darkness. It was real. I prayed. I'm thankful to God. This is what came to my mind. I prayed the language of the Lord's Prayer, deliver us from evil. And I am persuaded the Lord answered that prayer. Now, it is entirely possible that the main thing that happened is I was very low on sleep and my brain was not working properly. That could very well be the case. It could have been a physical thing, the brokenness of this world. It could have been something like that that then demonic evil takes advantage of. We don't know. The point is we don't have to sort it out, but that what these scriptural themes do tell us is we ought to always be alert to all of them. We ought to always be thinking of our experience of the Christian life as involving all of these enemies. And in fact, it's it's, uh, important to remember we are perhaps most in danger when we are tempted to zero in on one in particular. So Psalm 83, the psalm we sang this morning about God to judge his enemies, very much has a focus on the world being the opposition that God's people were facing. There were nations physically attacking Israel with spiritual motivation, trying to eliminate the worship of the Lord and have idolatry win. And so that spiritual conflict, demonic evil, and that reality of the world opposing God's people were combined together. Now, the temptation for Israel was to think it's just about those bad people. And there's these hints at the end of the psalm that one of the things Israel was actually praying for was not the destruction of those people, but that they would come to know the Lord that they would be redeemed, restored in Christ ultimately. And what did that prayer require distinguishing? Well, that the real enemy was not those people, it was demonic evil. 
It is the devil. It is the dragon, the serpent from the garden. And Israel's danger was to simply focus on one rather than constantly being alert to all three being the case. Many of us have things in the Christian life where there's a combination of our physical weakness, the brokenness of our bodies, and a sense of spiritual oppression. And often in conservative Christian circles, we can desperately try to sort this out. We want to pick which one it is. We want to say, if it's spiritual, it must not be physical. If it's physical, it must not be spiritual. But why wouldn't it be the case that they're simply combined? That there are many enemies we face, and the language of our catechism here is very wisely rooted in the history of the church, seeking to alert us to all three being the case. So, it's not about sorting out which enemy am I facing. It's rather about remembering to be alert to all three. However, there is one enemy in particular that I do think in our current time and place we are most tempted to neglect the reality of. And so I want us to spend some time, this is number two on your outline, a real enemy. I want us to spend a little bit of time making much of the language of our catechism, including the devil as one of our sworn enemies. The reality of personal spiritual evil as one of the enemies we face. Number two, a real enemy. This prayer forces us to acknowledge something that we have every reason to believe the devil would rather we forget. That we face real, personal, spiritual evil. This is why I want to highlight this one. There's been many writers over the last, I think we could say over the last century, that have sought to emphasize this point. That it seems to be the case that in our particular cultural time and place, it is the devil's strategy to hide. It is the strategy of demonic evil to want to be behind the scenes. Now, we don't, this is not something we can know for sure, but simply seeking to be wise about how we are attacked spiritually, it seems to be that one of the main ways we are being attacked is to be tempted to deny the reality of all of this. To live in a world that is just a cold and meaningless machine grinding on, driven by physical forces. That the great demon that the devil would like us to give into is the rejection of there being demons. And so I want to remind us this evening, just for a few moments together, and we're going to get through A through E quickly. I want to remind us just for a few moments of how the scriptures describe our world as being one in which personal spiritual forces are a reality. Ephesians 6 verse 12. One of the reasons we can't spend too much time here is because I need to preach a sermon on this part of Ephesians 6 in several weeks, and so I can't do that all now. So there will be more on this later. But for now, just an overview. Ephesians 6 verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Notice how Paul here does not just affirm the reality of spiritual darkness, cosmic powers, but he actually makes a contrast. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against all of this spiritual darkness. This is something that especially Jewish Christians needed to realize. The issue is not Jew versus Gentile. It's Jew and Gentile as fellow humans being oppressed by demonic evil. And Paul is saying that demonic evil is the real enemy. And in fact, you as Jewish Christians are to proclaim good news to the Gentiles that they also can be freed from that real enemy. And so Paul says, our real battle that we are wrestling with is 
rulers, authorities, go against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil. Here is something we need to balance at this point. The language of the Apostle Paul here is very clear that this demonic evil is real and very clear that it is what we face. It's also not clear about much of anything else. By which I mean this, if what you want to do is have every curiosity satisfied or if you want to live life in a way that's just obsessed with this sort of thing, the Bible does not give you warrant to do that. The Bible gives us just enough to encourage us to acknowledge this reality, but not enough to encourage a kind of obsession or fascination with it. And so this is a topic that is especially intimidating as a minister, because there are some of us who very much need to be challenged to take more seriously the reality of spiritual darkness, and there's others of us who need to be told to chill out a little bit, to not be so obsessed. There can be kind of a Uh, a faithless, a rebellious fascination with this sort of thing that the scriptures also do not warrant. So as I show you quickly these examples of where God's word affirms this reality of spiritual darkness, be hearing this in a cautious way. These examples are there to be clear. The world is more than physics and engineering can account for. Now, I love physics and mathematics and engineering, it accounts for a whole lot. It is amazing and wondrous what all it can do. But the idea that it can account for everything is not just wrong, it's philosophically ridiculous. And these these scriptural examples are simply examples in which the Bible alerts us to that wise reality. We're not going to look at every passage. I want to alert you to these. If they're not familiar to you, then I encourage you to go look them up later. The example of Pharaoh's magicians. When Aaron throws his staff on the ground and it becomes a serpent, the real fun part of that story is that Pharaoh's magicians do the same thing. There is some sort of real something that they were able to tap into and make the same thing happen. Now, the real fun part of the story is that the serpent from Aaron then eats the ones that were from Pharaoh's magicians. But the point I'm wanting to highlight here is that the scripture is there affirming that there is some sort of dark power that is real that people are able to tap into and use. The example of the medium of Endor in 1 Samuel 28. In this situation, the king Saul is crying out to the Lord for help in a war. He's not getting an answer. He really wants to talk to Samuel, who has died. And so he goes to this medium. And by the way, this is different. This is not where the Ewoks are from, Endor. Different Endor. That always bugged me as a kid. There's Endor is real? Anyway, the medium of Endor. So, Sam, or, so Saul goes to this medium to, uh, to, to try to get access to Samuel. Everything he's doing is wicked and evil at every point. The scriptures are clear. You ought not to go to necromancers, these sorts of things. That's all very clear. He's being rebellious at every point by doing this. There's a reason God is not saying anything to him. And yet here's the part I want to highlight. It actually works. Samuel, in some form, actually appears to him. Now, this raises all sorts of fascinating questions about what that means in the Old Testament view of the realm of the dead, all sorts of wonderful things we can talk about there, but what am I wanting to highlight? That spiritual darkness is real, sufficiently real, that when Saul goes to the medium of Endor, it actually works somehow. It's also clear that he should not have been doing that. 
The example I want to actually read is from Daniel chapter 10. I invite you to turn there with me. Daniel 10, verses 10 through 24. So these examples, again, I want to say it the same way I said for Ephesians 6. They are clear enough about what they are clear about, but they're not clear about much anything else, right? They're, they're certainly not giving us enough to then explain what all of this is. It's simply alerting to the reality of that evil. Daniel 10, verses 10 through 24. In this circumstance, Daniel has been waiting for the answer to a prayer, an answer that's being brought to him by an angel, And the angel says this. Let's start at verse 12. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision is for the days yet to come. So what is clear here? Well, apparently, this angel was sent with an answer, but he was delayed because of this conflict with the prince of the kingdom of Persia, so that the angel Michael is sent to then, like, as a reinforcement, to then win that, so that then this answer from God can actually get to him. So what is clear here? (laughs) Well, basically nothing. But this is part of the point. What is clear is that there is more. What is clear is that there is that which is beyond what our claims to be brilliant. And we are, as humans, given so much brilliance in all of these areas of creation that we can explore and understand. What is clear is that there is more. There is something bigger going on behind the scenes. And it is that something more that the Apostle Paul is highlighting in Ephesians 6. And it is that something more as a real evil that attacks the church that the Lord's Prayer is telling us to pray about. Letter D, Jesus casting out demons. I'll just give you one example. There's many passages you could look at. These demons seem to know who Jesus is. They seem to be wise in recognizing him as the Messiah, as the Son of God. And Jesus, by casting them out, exerts his authority over them. He is the creator present in Israel, and he is able to command, ultimately to to control, that evil that is present in the world. Why is there so much demon possession happening when Jesus is there? Well, we can speculate that at least part of it is, we know on the basis of things that are said by the demons, that, that the devil was aware of the fact that this was in danger of being his doom, that the big turning point of the ages had come upon the world. And so this is that last flailing, that last seeking to, uh, to, to subdue Israel and keep God from doing through Israel what God had always intended to do. Jesus comes to fight that spiritual evil. In fact, perhaps that's the most important thing to draw from those accounts of Jesus casting out demons. They are too often too easily presented simply as Jesus helping people. It was bad for that guy to be possessed, and Jesus was nice and helped him. Now, it is true that, obviously, that happening would be a blessing for the one being rescued, but what is being declared is that Jesus is making war on that spiritual evil, 
that Jesus is the one promised who would come ultimately to defeat the serpent. And so all of his casting out of demons is an expression of that great conflict that he came to win. Letter E, the dragon and the offspring of the woman. Revelation 12, a place where that conflict is described. Interestingly, Michael shows up again. And so this is still a thing, apparently. And what I want to highlight here is in verse 17, we are told that the dragon who made war on the woman representing Israel, so think of all the stuff we've been talking about, continues to make war on the offspring of the woman. So my point here is very simple. Revelation 12 says, whatever had been happening continues to be what is happening. Now in a different form, because Jesus has won the decisive battle, but the dragon, the serpent, who had made war on the woman representing Israel, continues to attack the church. That is the reality the Apostle Paul speaks of in Ephesians 6. That is what our catechism is telling us we are praying about in the Lord's Prayer. Deliver us from evil. Now, what does all of this mean in every detail? Well, what I'm trying to emphasize here is we don't always know. But we need to be alert to the reality that there are spiritual enemies of the church who in a way, typically, it would seem mingled together with our sinful flesh, the brokenness of our bodies, the reality of the opposition of the world are attacking God's people. And our Lord Jesus Christ would have us pray in a manner that alerts us to that, that speaks of that, deliver us from evil. When you are in the midst of a trial and it is oppressive, pray the way Jesus taught you to pray. Pray, deliver us from evil, not claiming to have sorted out what is what. The scriptures don't sort it out for us. Evil's all mingled together. But pray the way Jesus taught you to pray. And pray in the confidence that Jesus is the one who taught you to pray this way. Who gave you this prayer as a prayer that he then desires to answer. Because he has won for us, number three on your outline, a real victory. This prayer reminds us of when we are. Living between the past victory of Christ and his future victory when he returns. Wonderful language of the catechism. So the, f- the first half is simply alerting us to realities that we are weak and we have sworn enemies attacking us. But then as a petition, what does it say? And so, Lord, uphold us and make us strong by the power of your Holy Spirit so that we may not be defeated in the spiritual fight, but may firmly resist our enemies until we finally win the complete victory. The tone of what the catechism says, we're saying in this petition, is that we're praying it not in this open-ended, who knows what's going to happen way, but we are praying it with the confident expectation that God answers that prayer in the way of victory. Uphold us and make us strong, that we may not be defeated, firmly resist, and then directed toward until we finally win the complete victory. Where is that confidence coming from? Well, Yeah, number three, it's because of when we are. We are living after that decisive victory of our Lord Jesus Christ at the cross. And here's the problem. We don't often enough think of what Jesus did at the cross as being fighting against spiritual darkness. Letter A. Jesus was aware that he was confronting spiritual darkness. 
We read from John 12, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. That Old Testament language for the serpent, for the dragon. Jesus is troubled because he knows he is facing spiritual darkness. John 14, in the... the um, in that section, 13 to 17, in multiple places, but in that passage in particular, Jesus signals his awareness that he is facing Satan. And that part of what is troubling him, part of the burden he bears as he goes to the cross, is that reality of demonic evil that he is facing. Luke 22, verse 53, Jesus says, Now is your hour and the power of darkness. Speaking mysteriously, but alerting to the reality of spiritual darkness being what he was facing. Well, how do we understand that? We know the cross to be Jesus bearing the penalty for our sins. And so in those really uh, more simplistic summaries of the cross, we speak of it as something of, of the wrath of God the Father being unleashed upon God the Son. And all of that is, of course, true. But part of what our sin unleashed on the world, one of the consequences of our sin, was the unleashing of demonic evil upon the world. One of the consequences of our sin was the role that Satan, that the dragon, was able to continue to play. And so one of the consequences Jesus had to bear was all of that demonic evil doing its worst. All of it being unleashed upon him. And so in those moments where spiritual darkness is oppressive, we need to remember that part of what Jesus took upon himself at the cross was all of that spiritual darkness doing its worst. And that matters because then letter B, Jesus defeated that spiritual darkness by his death and resurrection. This is why we have to do that hard work theologically of appreciating the role of darkness being unleashed at the cross because that then makes sense of how the New Testament speaks of darkness being defeated by the cross. Colossians 1, that is not right. I'm going to guess I meant Ephesians. Nope. Anyway, so there's this verse. (laughs) There's several of them. We saw them in our time in Ephesians where the Apostle Paul speaks of the powers in the world being triumphed over, being put to open shame by what God did through Christ at the cross. Letter C then, flowing from that victory... Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to enable us to persevere in the strength of that victory. Luke 24, verse 48, Jesus tells the disciples to wait for the sending of power, the Holy Spirit being sent upon his church. Continuing in Ephesians 6, verse 17, where the apostle speaks of the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. You see what I mean by remembering when we are. That we live in the time after all that evil did its worst at the cross. Jesus defeated it. It remains in the world, but as a defeated power. And the Holy Spirit has been sent to then enable us to victoriously persevere over against that evil. And that is exactly the language of our catechism. Uphold us and make us strong by the power of your Holy Spirit. Finally, letter D. The sixth petition is a fundamentally hopeful prayer. Because the Jesus who calls us to... You could say, hold the line, that is to be faithful in battle, in the spiritual war, is the hero who has already gone ahead of us in battle and won the victory. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, 
Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you for the victory of our Lord Jesus Christ over all that is evil in this world. We pray that you would help us to receive by faith the announcement of this victory and that you would deliver us from evil. As we know we are weak, as we know we have enemies, we pray that you would uphold us and make us strong, that we might share in that victory of Christ. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.